right, here he is, the first guest of 2024, Bruce Sword from the Pineapple Thief. Bruce, what's going on? Oh, I'm sat in my studio. I did some mixing. I've just signed a load of CDs I had to do, so just a normal day. Well, thank you for uh, coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, the Pineapple Thief has a brand new record out on February 9th. It leads to this. It's really, really good, and I believe this is uh, the 15th uh, Pineapple Thief album. Is that right? <laughs> yeah yeah it is but i kind of view it as probably the fourth one really since um so we've been through so many sort of epochs and the the, the, the epoch where we kind of got more successful was when uh, we we joined up with gavin harrison on drums with your wilderness and that was four albums ago so it kind of fit, it still feels like pretty fresh it doesn't feel like 15 15 albums it's interesting uh, that you feel like this is maybe the fourth because, uh, you know, 11 records uh, is a lot to feel, you know, and then you have kind of a rebirth. It's uh, it's interesting. And it kind of sort of came, uh, which I want to get into all that later, but, but the, the rebirth of the band sort of came, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you'd say late in the career, but certainly quite a while after the band was, was formed in 99. Yeah, yeah it's, it's weird because I've come across so many people in the, in the music business as we, uh, who've done it the other way around we kind of done it from the opposite way like so many other people sort of start with a big success you know they just um that's how it kind of used to work in the 90s sure and then it kind of a bit of a gradual sort of you know never quite matched that massive hit first record whereas we kind of done just the complete opposite and i and it's i can honestly say that like 20 years no it's 25 25 years uh later we are actually still on an upward curve which is incredible uh, you know I, I feel really privileged but it does mean you start from a low base you see so that does help well uh, yeah i mean it's it's really uh the pineapple thief really has a very organic uh fan base in the way that it was grown and there's obviously you know it's not really a, a radio uh type of band so you know no radio support or anything like that it's all been very uh organic and word of mouth i would imagine yeah, I mean, it's, I mean it, even exactly just like things like this. I mean, even though obviously the internet's completely different to how it was when I started, back in 1999, there was still the equivalent sort of of, of of enthusiasts who were sort of doing these small magazines. There were some bigger ones, but especially as a progressive rock artist, there was no mainstream sort of printed press that you could get in. So it was really, really hard. So we, uh, when we started to get a fan base, it was very small, but they were so dedicated, and I think they felt they were part of something. They, they, I think they felt that 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 by buying a CD, coming to a show, they were really, really, they really were. They were making a huge difference. You know, it was a case of well, I sold five hundred copies of the first record, and that was just enough for the record label to say, oh, we'll we'll do another one. And so I so I did, and it was that it was that level of of, uh, of interest and, and support that that kept it kept it going. Well, you also released uh, what I believe is your uh, fourth solo record, Luminescence, a few months back in September. And uh, being, uh, you know, essentially the the main songwriter of the Pineapple Thief, obviously the solo stuff has uh, a little bit of a different vibe. But is there ever uh, any debate, uh, even just within yourself, as to whether whatever it is you're writing, you're going to, you know, it could turn into something for the Pineapple Thief, or do I use this for, for the next solo record? Yeah, it is a bit of a weird. It's a bit of a weird juggling act. I kind of, I've got this solo head that once I've screwed it on, it it kind of has to stay on for like a couple of months. Yeah, it's not something that I can just sort of take, have keep keep swapping around. It's just too difficult. And I think 
with the pineapple thief the songwriting has changed quite a lot so in the early days it was me i did everything and, and just sort of handed out parts to the band sure um whereas now it's a real it's a proper band a band um sort of effort you know i i, I don't finish the songs i come up with some melodies and the ideas and the lyrics but it's the band that comes together and and puts and and creates what happens at the end which you know some of the songs i listen to and think well i would never have done that by myself so but whereas a solo yeah it's um it is just me it's a bit like me in the early days of the pineapple thief where i would just stick my you know myself in the studio and that would be it alone and and sort of create records so it's very different well what's interesting uh, about luminescence and kind of funny is that you had the the record finished you put it on a cd you played in the car for your family and uh, one of your, your sons, he goes, Dad, I, I think this would be way better with some strings. And you're like, no way, it's finished. But then later on, you're like, oh, shit, he's right. So you ended up adding strings. And I believe you spent uh, like 95% of the advance from uh, from the label K-Scope just on these strings for the record. I did. I did. Yeah, I could kill him. I could kill him because I, I deliberately <laughs> wanted to make this quite... Um, and exposed and, and minimalist sort of instrumentally wise. But I think probably it was a little bit too minimalist. And that was why he said, you know, really could do his strings. And I kind of thought, well, if I'm going to do it, you've got to do it right. It's it's And unfortunately, strings are expensive. But um, yeah, I got this this string arranger who worked with Pineapple Thief um, a few years back, a guy called Andrew Skeet, who's the keyboard player with Divine Comedy. Mm. And um, he's the most amazing string arranger. So I gave him the songs and he, he loved it and created these string arrangements and just got the, some of the best players you can get in London. And that's why most of the advance, most of the advance went. But it was an amazing feeling. I, I, I think it's not the first time I've, I've had a string, you know, attended a string section, but it's quite overwhelming when you see these people playing these parts on your songs. Well, so obviously that, you know, that record kind of... Uh evolved because of of uh your son and then i know that uh i think your your previous solo record all this will be yours uh was inspired by you know you were spending so much time with your newborn baby at the time uh so it sounds like a lot of your solo stuff is influenced by your kids and uh you know some years back uh and i don't mean to be uh insensitive but you know your first child tragically passed away uh five five days old when an unthinkable tragedy such as that happens do you have to sort of take a break uh, from, from writing music uh, or do you just kind of, you know, does it inspire you to maybe just kind of lock yourself in a studio and, and just write more music to, to get through it? That's a good question. I, I, I think it's a bit of both. It's really difficult when something really, you know, really tragic, you know, really, really immense like that happens. You kind of feel if you go away and think, oh, I'm going to write a song about it, it doesn't kind of feel right, you know. I, I So it's it's very difficult to sometimes to... But at the same time, the flips, flip side of that coin is that that going into the arts, going into trying to write lyrics and, and, and music is a way that you can try and understand what's going on, you know, trying to make sense. You know, trying to make sense of grief is is one of the... One of the really big things, you know, that we all have to, to to face up to, and I think music is such a brilliant way to sort of to help deal with that, to help sort of try and understand it. You know, this the sense of loss and grief, you know, it's terrible. There's no there's no answer to it, but I think that 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 music is can create um, can give comfort. Well, I would imagine, uh, you know, that's. Uh, I mean, I think most people would agree that's probably the one of the worst things that could ever happen to somebody, but I'm sure the the feelings of that probably still uh, influence 
Uh, so I don't know how long ago that was, but I'm, I'm sure that still sort of influences, uh, comes out in some of your writing to this day, I'm sure. It does. I, funny enough, there's a line in the new record. There's a track called To Forget, and um, there's a lyric in there. Because me and my wife, we have very different ways of sort of dealing with, with grief. And uh, my wife likes to face up to it. She likes to, to and she likes to talk about it and it, she, it, what she wants it to be there in her life all the time. Whereas I'm kind of one of these people who finds it difficult, you know, to, to think about it. And so there's this line. So we have these conversations with her and there's this line in there which says, remembering is not easy, but to forget is impossible. And when I saw that, I, I was, it was actually a quote when I read it. I thought, oh, that just sums it up completely. You know, the, the kind of how, you know, well, you know, just dealing with with those kind of tragic moments in your life, which every, unfortunately everybody is probably going to have to come across that moment at some point. So sure. it's, um, yeah, it's a universal thing. I want to go back uh, to your beginnings because I don't believe uh, you started playing guitar until you were around uh, 14 years old. Uh, you thought you were, it was too late to start. You were too old, which is, uh, you know, a pretty interesting thought process for a teenager who generally thinks, you know, they can, they can do uh, anything. But then it was a friend of yours who says it's never too late. So you started playing and I think now you're, you're uh, totally self-taught. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, was, yeah, I was 14, but the thing is, I guess, because life just feels so, you know, every day feels so long when you're young. And I, and I remember all my friends, they'd already been playing instruments since they were like six, you know, they were already grade eight to the piano. And so I just thought, well, it's too late. I just can't, I'm never going to catch up, which is a ridiculous thing to think. You're 14 years old. Sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I bought a guitar. Uh, I remember my dad said to me, what have you bought that for? You know, it's a waste of money. And that kind of made me think, no, that's it. I'm going to show you. I'm going to actually <laughs> figure out how to play this thing. And um, I bought one one book. It was Bert Whedon's Play in a Day um, that taught me the, really the basics. And after that, it was really self-taught. Technically, there's a few things I do, which you, if you were like a prop guitarist, you would look at me and go, oh, that's not, you know, technically that's a bit sloppy. <laughs> but, but, you know, but yeah, it's, um, it's yeah, I, I like, and I think the fact that I'm self-taught and, you know, I don't read music, um, it's I think it's useful for when you're coming up when you're a songwriter. So when you're trying to think of melodies, it's very pure. You're not influenced by by anything else. You're only influenced by what you hear and then how you can convey it into into your fingers and your and, and what you hear on the guitar. So so yeah, it's a that's it. That's my excuse anyway for for not being trained. <laughs> Well, in your household growing up, it was not a, a very uh, musical household, right? Nobody, uh, nobody in your family played music or anything like that. No, no, that, I think that was the thing. I came, I came at it completely. It, I was so naive when I when I when I came into music, um, and it was a long, long learning curve. But I think because because it, I came from nowhere into this world of music, all of a sudden I had some friends whose who'd families where they were all all, all really deep into music. It was such a magical world you know it's like being dumped into this magic you know that you sure. hadn't experienced before so it was i think that was one of the the reasons why i just became so obsessed with it and and why i'm still like 50 what my 51 now um still <laughs> obsessed with it now the the friend that sort of you know pushed you to, to play is that the same a uh, guy that you started uh, Vulgar Unicorn with, or was that somebody else? No, funny, no, it wasn't. He, what, we did play with him in the early days with Vulgar Unicorn. No, my old friend. I mean, it's my old friend Neil Randall in, in Vulgar Unicorn. He was he was the real you know creative force. He was a bit of a genius to be honest, but he kind of 
couldn't keep his mind on one thing at a time. Um, but so, but he, he obviously he was a massive impact in my life. But there was a guy called Richard Hunt who played violin and piano, and he played in the early early Vogue Unicorn demos. And it was him who uh, who, who I always remember tell, tell, telling me it was never too late to start. It's kind of interesting uh, how Vulgar Unicorn uh, was able to establish a fa uh, fan base because I believe when uh, when the band first went in the studio and recorded, I think it was just like three songs, and then you end up making uh, 50 cassettes, and somehow Cyclops Records get, uh, gets a hold of one of the cassettes, uh, which obviously Cyclops is going to be uh, Vulgar Unicorn's label, and then Pineapple Thief's label before uh, switching to K-Scope. But how did uh, Cyclops originally get a hold of one of the vulgar unicorn cassettes was that something you submitted to them or did it just kind of happen no. out of love? No, it's, it's funny when you look back on it all these little events that 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 happened and if that now to come to think of it if that if they didn't happen i wouldn't be sat here talking to you now because this was in the days be before cd burners and cheap it's cheap cd so so bands small bands they would cassettes were still the main thing sure yes yeah, so i remember we made a box of 50 cassettes now I, I saw them all i thought wow look at all those it's like it's our music and it's there's so many of them it just felt so exciting and we sat i can't remember how we they got sent away but there was um that one guy was a guy called dave robinson who went on to make a, a label called f2 i think um they have a band called magenta i think were their biggest band and um he in the early days he made this this audio directory he called it with with all these underground progressive rock bands so he got hold of one of the tracks asked for it off the off the cassette and so we gave him one the house on fudge corner it was called so he put it on this cassette and then malcolm parker who ran cyclops records heard it got in contact with us and said oh well, you know really like this song can you give me an album and that was it so it was it was we just let it was definitely in the the the, the gods were responsible for for that for that happening and so what, what year was this was this uh like mid 90s yeah early 90s this must have been 90 at that point 92 93 because i think it was 1994 that that album came out so we must have spent a year sort of doing it and, and those were the days where you had to get to go to a recording studio you know it, the home technology wasn't wasn't good enough so uh so yeah, we got our date little jobs and saved up and booked two weeks in a recording studio. Yeah, early nineties. Well, I know that uh, you had some music that the label was was willing uh, willing to release. It was separate from Vulgar Unicorn. That's how the the Pineapple Thief got started. But did that sort of come from uh, because you were the one in in Vulgar Unicorn that wanted to tour? Uh, nobody else did. So is that how you kind of started writing stuff on your own for what would become the Pineapple Thief? Yeah, I think I think that, um, that, that it was a, it basically turned into a little duo. Me and me and Neil Randall, and but he was the main songwriter. Um, and then I kind of think I was sort of going into my late early teens, late teens, and grunge was happening. Um, so my musical taste, I kind of wanted to get out there, and I wanted to play in a quite an edgy guitar-based band. You know, I want. I saw some of my friends; they were going. We, we live in a little town in Southwest UK. Everyone goes to London. You know, that's where you go. You go to Camden and that's where there's loads of little venues where it's really exciting. If you want to get found out, that's where you go. You go, you get a band together and you go to Camden and hopefully get a record deal. Um, and that's what I did. So I got little bands together, little three piece bands. And I start. that's when I really started writing, writing for myself. And that's where the bug came. And then I started sort of writing more and more and kind of realized that I, kind of, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed coming up with 
with m melodies more than you know just hooks that's when i got really really excited by that kind of thing well then when it when you end up naming the project uh, the pineapple thief from from uh <laughs> watching the movie where the uh girl steals the pineapple what, what was that movie called again uh eve's bayou yeah it's a it's an american indie film and yeah. so originally there was no uh the at the beginning of the name then you add the at the beginning to because there was too many comparisons with porcupine tree and, and pt yeah. being the initials and and all that and yeah i came across a photo online um that you had posted uh, some years ago and it was like a package of towels uh, <laughs> backstage yeah. and, and it said uh, porcupine tree but then it was crossed out crossed and said out. The pineapple yeah that oh, was hilarious yeah that was in berlin yeah we we were do this is when pineapple thief was sort of touring doing short sort of two-week tours in in uh, in splitter vans but yeah when i when i saw that you got to laugh. You got to see the funny side. That's for sure. Was that like a? I mean, was that a, really a mistake that they made? They originally oh, I wrote. I don't know. I think. <laughs> I. I hope. I don't know. Maybe it was a, in hindsight. It was a joke. It was just there. So the crew had just left it and crossed it out and put the name in. So I would never know. Never know whether it's a joke or a genuine mistake. But it is quite common. I, people always say, "Oh, yeah, Bruce from um, you know the porcupine tree or the pineapple tree and things like that." So. Um, <laughs> You know, the pineapple tree, you know, porcupine thief and things like that. So it's like, yeah, it still, it still happened, but, you know. Well, obviously, there's so many uh, porcupine tree connections uh, now with Gavin and the band and all that. Um, and I think, you know, the first, uh, I think it was the first six records uh, were released via Cyclops. But then in the mid-2000s, Stephen Wilson uh, from Porcupine Tree, of course, tells you that, you know, you need to get on a, li a bigger label that, that's going to push this music a little bit more. And that's how uh, you end up. He introduces you to K Scope, uh, yeah. Which I, I think the first K Scope record was was tightly unwound. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I've got a feel. So yeah, it was really nice of Stephen to do to take time to help me in those days. And so what happened was the, his band Blackfield that he had at the time um, asked for a support act, and that's how he everyone says pineapple thief, pineapple thief, and that's how we found out about us, and and that's how we we were introduced. And um, and and yeah, so yeah, he uh, he introduced us. Um, I think K-Scope was actually um, Stephen Wilson's idea. So it was his idea. I think he came up with the name K-Scope because before that, the original label Snapper had bought all the rights to the old Delirium Porcupine Tree records. So they wanted to create a, a label for it, and so that so he came up with that. And not, and I think we were the first one um might not i but if not we would pretty much num definitely number two but yeah right at the beginning right at the beginning with tiny Island. since you were associated with cyclops uh for so long you know i guess at that point you know 15 16 years whatever going back to the vulgar unicorn days when you ended up leaving was there any uh was there any sort of animosity there yeah to put it to put it mildly i i, I felt really really bad about 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 that because um the label came across and uh, and they wanted the catalogue. And I think the reason that, that we were, it was a business decision because I, I had six records and we built up a fan base. So it was actually a going concern. They could say, oh, we can, it's not starting from someone from scratch. They're actually something we can work with. And so obviously it's an amazing opportunity for me. You know, I, at the time I, I still had to, I had a day job, obviously, which I hated. And it was like, this is my ticket out of here to become a professional musician which was always my dream. 
Um, but then, of course, the label starts negotiating and asking for more money, and then it becomes and the other um, case scope says no, it's we can't, ha- it can't happen. And I was like, oh, just caught in the middle. Um, so in the end, I just said, I just sort of, su- kind of like Pontius Pilate, I kind of washed my hands of it, and I said, look, just leave you two to deal with it. And it, I don't know how it ended up or, or what, but I, but it did. Obviously, um, Malcolm was not happy with how how it how it ended up and yeah it's a it's a it's something that i regret to this day that it's it was um that unfortunately in the music business it, it business and friendship can sometimes they can collide sure. and it's such a it's such a unique business because you you spend so much time as real mates you know go you know it's, when you're in a tour bus or, or a, a, a little van driving around europe playing in these t- t- you know terrible tiny black pits of venues or struggling with, a, you know, selling a 500 CDs of Cyclops. It, that is a real camaraderie. But then when it comes to having to make horrible business decisions, such as maybe if you're changing, a, you need to change personnel in the band even, it's horrible. It's really horrible. And it's one of the worst things about it. That, 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 that I'll, Yeah, lots of, lots of regrets in my head about that. Is Cyclops uh, still around? No, no, no. I, I don't know what Malcolm is up to. Um, I know that 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 um, there's a magazine here that that wanted to do a feature on Cyclops, but I don't think they got got found any contact. So no, I don't know. The website, funnily enough, is still there. You know, kind of designed in in the nineties. <laughs> um, but it's yeah, I, I I don't yeah I don't know. It'd be interesting if anyone knows what what he's up to. Well, it'd be nice to know. Does it make you feel uh, worse that may- maybe they had to shut down because the pineapple thief left? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even worse. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I do feel bad. I mean, it's it's difficult because I I can't. I had to make a selfish decision on for my for my career. It of was course. a selfish decision to make, but I think if I'd let it, it, I was at the position where the whole deal would have fallen through. And I remember at the time um the other main label at the time was inside out and uh they'd already passed so it was like well this is this is the one the one shot that we've got uh like you said earlier the band basically you know started out as a solo project and a few years later you you add guys to the band so that you can uh uh, take it out on the road but even when when you brought other guys into the band you were still uh you did all of the the songwriting and everything up until uh, I think you said it was all the wars uh, in in 2012 is when everybody kind of uh, everybody else kind of started contributing to the band. Is that right? Well, that's the first time we recorded as a band. So, quite I, to be honest, before that, all the records were I, I played everything, and I kind of um, just put credits uh, on to because I didn't want people to, to think, oh, everything's done by me in the studio. I wanted it to look like there was a band. So I kind of I, I made out that other people were playing. But All the Wars was the first time I thought, no, this is a band. We, we're touring together. Um, we're a close knit. We're a close bunch of people. Let's hire a residential studio and record the record. And it was didn't go as smoothly as I'd hoped. It was very difficult, and it turned into a very difficult record because I was so used to to having full control in the studio. Um, it it was uh, yeah, it was it was it was hard. Well, I would imagine it, it's got to be tough, sort of, because uh, I know you, you've said before that uh, back in those days you were a little bit of a control freak, and and handing over the creative reins, so to speak, even if it's just a little bit, yeah, it's got to be tough, especially in a project that 
you've been, you know, basically running all by yourself for, you know, at that point, you know, 15 years or whatever it was. Yeah, I, I think I think that was the thing that I underestimated. I underestimated how difficult it would be. I thought, no, this is going to be great. I'd empower them all. They'd all be, they'd all, um, you know, they'd all feel you know, like they, they, they're invested in, in the band a lot more. Um, but then I kind of, then when things didn't go as well as I'd hoped, then I kind of felt that actually nobody else really feels the same way about the band that I do. You know, I expected everybody to be as, intensely you know connected and ambitious about the music um and you know to obsess about it to the point where i would you know be, when i was working the, my family life would would suffer because i would be so obsessed with, with, with getting the music right and of course you know the, the rest of the guys won't like that and i didn't understand it and i and it would make me angry because i said come on you know i'm doing this why aren't you doing it you know and in hindsight it was ridiculous you know that i should feel that way um so yeah it was it was difficult difficult uh before gavin harrison joined there was a, a couple of of uh drummer switch-ups the the original drummer i believe uh, his name was keith harrison he leaves the yep. band in, in 2013 dan osborne comes in for a bit uh does magnolia in 2014 uh before gavin comes in which i want to get to but uh why the reason for the uh drummer change-ups yeah, so I mean, Keith. After all the wars, Keith left just for personal reasons. It was really a case of being able to commit. It's really difficult. It's a real chicken and egg thing with a band when you're at this level, which is like you're a level where you're you've got a lot of interest and you're quite busy, but you're not making any any money in order to go to be full time. So everybody's having to juggle family lives and job lives. You're trying to tour. You're taking people away from their family. It's really really hard. So in the end, Keith just just couldn't do it, and um, and then uh, we met a guy called uh, Dan Osborne, who was brilliant. You know, he was a brilliant drummer, very much an old school rock drummer. You know, proper. You know, um, and we did Magnolia, which I was really proud of, really proud of it. And um, it didn't commercially, it didn't do as well as we'd hoped. And then Dan sort of said, right, well, actually, I need to move on, you know, to, to other things. So we were like thinking, oh, this has been a quite a tumultuous couple of years. What should we do? And I remember saying to John, my, this is my best mate and ba bass player, I said, uh, well, I think this is probably it. This is probably it for the band. Let's just do one more record and get a session guy. I had no idea who to get. And um, it was K-Scope that said, oh, phone Gavin. And I said, what, you mean Gavin Harrison from Porcupine Tree? Are you crazy? Um, so yeah, it was, it was in hindsight, looking back on it, it was, it was, um, it, it, it's amazing that we got through it. And, um, so I think the first time I sent the demo to Gavin, that was, um, that was a key moment. Well, and yeah, obviously, I mean, your wilderness is, I, I would have to imagine probably, uh, the band's biggest record, uh, yeah. you know, and, and given all of the, you know, porcupine tree, uh, connections over the years and things like that, is it a little frustrating to you that, that, you know, he comes in and then suddenly now it's it's this thing where, you know, you can support your families and, and, and really pay the bills solely off the band. Or, you know, in a way, are, are you, I mean, obviously, I would, I would imagine you're, you're thankful, but is it a little bit frustrating that, that even after all these years now, I guess, in, in a way, you sort of not owe your success to, to Porcupine Tree, but, but uh, you know, there's that connection is a big part in where the band is at today. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. I, I think that what Porcupine Tree did was really really important because they they when In Absentia came out, they had a 
big, big record deal. But they were touring the U- USA playing to like 50, 100, 200 people. You know, they were really, really go- starting from practically nothing. And they toured and they toured and they toured. They blew a lot of money doing it. But eventually they did it. They they got their success. And with that, you know, there was a lot of other bands afterwards that had th- that, that audience was that now realised that there were bands like Porcupine Tree doing this kind of modern interesting sort of progressive rock and rock and there were other bands doing it that they could they could they could um seek out so that definitely helped you know and um so and i must confess that's why i said to k-scope when when they mentioned oh should we, what about gavin and i said but, but you know all my life it's been the, the pt tpt porcupine <laughs> tree thing are you sure and i thought well sod it sod it you know it's it's that or nothing and um, and then I realised, you know, when he sent through the drums for In Exile, which I think is still our biggest song, it's by far the biggest stream song on 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 uh, on, on on streaming services. You know, I just realised, wow, you know, this sounds great. This it just sounds perfect. You know, it, it's almost like, well, if you've got this, if you've got a drummer like this that, that is going to play with you, um, you're going to use it. Just use it. And, you know, and there's always going to be, people, you know, these comments about, oh, yeah, yeah, Gavin Harrison, it's all Gavin Harrison. But it's you still need the songs. You still have to. You, you, you can't, you know, he can't just come and drum on on any old stuff and and be successful. You've got to have the band and you've got to have the songs. But um, but no, I don't have no regrets. None, none at all. Well, I think you've said before that uh, some of these promoters uh, now they like to they want to advertise your shows as the pineapple thief featuring uh, Gavin Harrison, yeah. right? Yeah, I think this tour we're doing now is the first one where we haven't had to do it, and and we, we like because we, we said, look, come on, with this like second, third record with with Gavin, he, he's joined the band. We've we've let everybody know. Um, why do we have to keep saying this? And then we realise that when we don't say it, the, all the comments are like, "It's Gavin playing. It's Gavin in the band." <laughs> and we're like, oh, "All right, let's put featuring Gavin Harrison." <laughs> Because um, yeah, he is a star. He's a star drummer. He's quite unusual, I think. There's not very many sort of s- superstar drummers in the world. Sure. And um, yeah, he's one of them. Well, uh, with the new record coming out on on February 9th, I saw some February and, and March uh, tour dates uh, that are already announced. But what else is uh, next following the album's release? Um, well, we've got hopefully, hopefully, we're looking at North America. Um, in later in the year but we're just we're just having a look at uh at the viability because it's just you know obviously expensive for a uk band to get out, out there um but yeah that's what we really want to do you know and i know that we've got a lot of people that want us to come over luckily um and then hopefully some more touring around europe festivals all that kind of stuff um and i guess because it's been now almost like a year since I was writing, I'll probably get the bug again and pick up the guitar and start writing some more music. Uh, is, do you think there'll be another uh, solo record first or a new Pineapple Thief record first after? Um, I'm going to start a new solo record because um, I've got an idea. I know what I want to write it about. And um, and this we've got this five-week tour coming on up. And so I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to take take my mobile recording get kit with me and see what happens so but that's i'm certainly going to start with solo in mind and then when when gavin's free um, probably get together with him and start writing again well one other thing uh, i want to ask you real quick before we wrap it up it's such a, a hot topic and, and a uh, very divisive debate these days but you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of talk now about you know bands using tracks not performing live 
all that kind of stuff. And, you know, being uh, in the prog world where, uh, you know, musicality is, is everything, really, you know, how, how do you feel uh, about that? And, you know, not so much, I guess, necessarily with, with pop stars and stuff, because that's it's kind of always been, you know, what, what it's been about. But, you know, with, with rock bands and, and things like that, uh, using tracks. I think I think if you start putting, I I, I can understand sometimes if you use backing tracks subtly. So you've got maybe you've got a string section or something that you just can't reproduce. There's not something that's like really really obvious. But I think if you start throwing guitars on there, vocals, all that kind of stuff, then I think you're crossing a line. And there is a line where you kind of think, am I watching a band or is this just like a karaoke performance? You know. You know, I know that, like you say, like there's there's one extreme, like Madonna's current tour, which is all backing track, just dancers and backing track. Um, and I, I think for us personally, we and this is why the new record and probably all the records since since Gavin's joined, we've tried to keep it. There's five of us and um, in the band, and we keep it to what the five of us can do, so that the, there's the backing, tra- you know, the backing tracks are really, really, really minor. You know, if, if there wasn't, I don't. If if we lost our the backing track, then you would know, you would notice. Um, so uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think, I think, and even for me, I, I, in terms of our performance, I think more and more we're trying to to to, to get back to the to the kind of seventies vibe where. It's just the band that goes on and they play and that's what the audience hears and uh, and off and you go and it, even things like the, the huge backdrops and videos and things for me personally I want to go and watch a band I don't want to watch um, big <laughs> huge you know random videos that, that, uh, hold on I don't want to watch that, that person in that video I want, I'm, I've come here to watch the band so yeah it's a it's it's a it's definitely a debate and something that, well, yeah, I'm not sure if we've got exactly right, to be honest. You know, if if, if I had it my way, it would be right back to the 70s, purely raw. Well, to your point of, of just wanting to uh, watch a band play live, what do you think of, uh, I'm sure you've seen videos of uh, you two at um, The Sphere uh, in yeah. Las Vegas, that, that new uh, insane venue. What do you think of something like that that's more experience-based? I think that's all. I don't mind that. I don't mind that. I was reading about the fact that they're thinking the people that made that sphere want to start selling it to other, you know, getting it to other other cities. But, you know, in London, for example, but that was being, they said, look, it would be too distracting. I've seen the images and I've also, I've seen the way that the PA has been designed. So it is a truly immersive. And, and the fact that, I, that, that, that I'm doing sort of surround sound and that more stuff as well, that gives, that opens up a huge thing. If you can then start thinking about mixing for a sphere, it's just perfect. So I think that has its place. I do. Uh, but then I think then you are really getting into a completely different world of, of like you say, experience. Yeah. As opposed to going to watching a band and having an experience, then then I think there's a, that's a completely different debate. And um, I think I just I was reading that Stephen Wilson recently talking about possibly touring his new album and that being more of an experience you know, as opposed to the performance side of things. So, you know, it's a, it's a completely different different angle. For me, the, what I love doing is playing in a, playing in a band and I want the, I want the audience to, to come and watch the band and, and, and go away feeling like they just listen to the band. Well, do you think a lot of bands will start... Uh, like like with with Stephen Wilson trying to do uh, trying to market things as more of a an experience because you know ever since uh, coming out of of COVID 
everybody is on tour uh, constantly and, and people have more than ever, you know, there's a million bands playing in their town every single night. Obviously, nobody has the money uh, to go to, you know, 5, 10, 20 shows a month. So, mm. you know, in an effort to sort of compete and, and stand out, because uh, it, it doesn't look like it's, it's slowing down in, in terms of touring. So do you think that more and more bands will try to start, you know, trying to change things up and, and uh, turn, turn it into experiences in an effort to sell tickets and compete above, above everybody else? Yeah, I think so. I think you have got to change for the times as well. You know, you can't just be a dinosaur and like be a bit like me saying, "Yeah, I just want to be like the seventies again." <laughs> so yeah, I think there is you. There is definitely you got to weigh that up. It's a very interesting point actually about it, uh, because when we 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 um, we got together and we said, "Right, we're going to market this tour." You look at the cost and you think, "Oh my god, the band is going to be bankrupt if we don't sell tickets." It's not a given that you're going to sell tickets. So when it went out and we got the ticket sales through, we were so, you know, it's, it, we've already sold more than our last tour. So thankfully for us, we're doing okay. The, the numbers are going up. But but it is, like you say, one, we're living in a period where everyone's not as rich as they used to be. So gigs are expensive. So it's not so easy. So we weren't, you know, it's not a given that people will, will come to our shows. So, yeah, I think it, it's a good point. But then doing an experience, that's not cheap either, you know, to do that well. Yeah. So yeah, a lot to think about. I think there is a lot to think about for the future. Well, make sure you check out it leads to this when it comes out on February 9th. Uh, Bruce, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lovely chat. It was, yeah, it was, uh, you certainly knew your stuff about Pineapple Thief. So yeah, I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, the band will make it over here uh, stateside later this year. And uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. Right? Have you been here since uh, since the pandemic? We were, we came in the middle of the pandemic, so Oof. it was 2020. Yeah. So we did suffer. It was um, depending on which state we were in. Um, but, you know, playing to a room full of, you know, having to wear masks and, you know, even some venues where there was some, they were trying to encourage social distancing. Wasn't rock and roll, really. So it would be very nice, very nice to come back um, in normal times. Yeah, well, Bruce, thank you again. I appreciate it, and uh, yeah, hopefully, I'll have you uh, back on uh, down the road. Yeah, lovely. Thanks a lot. <laughs>